I was only in the first grade when my grandmother on my dad's side passed away. And because we lived in Texas and all of the relatives were in Michigan and I was only in the first grade, I really didn't know her and, and don't remember much. But two things all these years later still stand out. One, it was very cold and snowy in Michigan. And to this kid from Houston, Texas, I thought that was pretty awesome. I don't feel that way anymore, by the way. <laughs> but the second thing I remember is that my dad's two sisters never talked again after that. It wasn't just the weather that was cold, but their relationship when it came to dividing the stuff. They didn't have a will, and it's not like she was rich, but one of my aunts got there ahead of the other and claimed the china and some jewelry and some photos, and they lived another 30, 40 years and never said a word again. To this six-year-old, that was a powerful lesson in greed, my first lesson in inheritance greed. Unfortunately, it wasn't my last because I've seen so many people and families who were totally civil with each other until that moment, and the greed kicked in. That is the occasion with which this passage begins. Someone in the crowd yells out to Jesus to settle a dispute about the inheritance among quarreling brothers. And Jesus apparently has no interest in solving their debate, but he does care about the deeper issue. He, he issues a warning against greed, all kinds of greed, he says. And then he says, because remember, your life does not consist in all that stuff. That's how the passage begins, but it doesn't end that way because it switches to a parable. And I probably should remind you that parables are stories, and most of them on the surface are kind of a slice of ordinary life in first century Mediterranean world. Everyone listening would go, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And then typically with a twist. And in this case, the twist is a humdinger. That's the Greek word there. It's a humdinger of a twist. Starts off easy enough. There's this farmer, and not just any farmer. This is old McDonald himself with a chicken here and there and everywhere. Okay, it's not chickens, it's crops. But he's got crops here and there and everywhere. He's got so much, and the harvest is so plentiful, he doesn't even know what to do. And so he says, I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger ones. And after all those trips to the Home Depot and all the barn construction, sits back, fingers laced behind his head, and says, time to relax, sit back, Enjoy the good life, retirement. And then God shows up. It's the only parable where God is a character. God shows up and says, you fool. This night, your life's being required of you. And what's going to happen to all that stuff? Over the years, scholars have pointed to at least three things wrong with this rich man who ends up being a fool. And by the way, fool is strong language in the Bible. First, it's all about him. He keeps saying, I this and I that. It's all about him. In the Old Testament, Je uh, Joseph builds bigger barns to store the harvest so that when the people of Israel are hungry, he can share it. Not this guy. It is all about him. And not just that, but he's always using the future tense. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I will do this. 
No footnotes, no asterisks, no if the creek don't rise or if God doesn't want it or if the market turns, none of that. He thinks he controls his own destiny. And besides that, there are no counselors. There's no, no friends to consult. It's like his board meetings happen every day in the mirror where he shaves. It's just him. He's, he's it. I remember, I think it's been 15 years ago, I was asked to be the baccalaureate preacher at William Jewell's graduation. And they'd asked me way in advance, so I spent the whole spring semester trying to figure out, what do you say to these young people graduating? You know, so many of those commencement things. Womp, womp, womp. Sounds like Charlie Brown's parents. And, and I just thought, what do you say? I settled on this parable. I wanted them to think about not being rich toward themselves, but toward God. And I, couldn't, I could not have picked a better passage. I had no idea just how fitting it would be because, and some of you will remember this, just days before graduation, a tornado tore through that campus and destroyed buildings, especially in the student housing. And they went through that campus, picking up the pieces, making sure that everyone was okay. They, they understood, at least for a moment, that life is fragile. But, I mean, they survived. And the marketplace was calling their name. I wasn't totally sure these 20-somethings now had a new perspective on life. But this parable is very clear. You can spend your whole life accumulating stuff. And some of you can maybe hear that old monologue by George Carlin about the stuff. But what happens when you die? It's all that stuff. Why is it that when we were kids, we played a game? We actually played a game where the object was to build more hotels on Park Place and Boardwalk so that everybody else around the table would go bankrupt. And we would call this person the winner. We should have played Operation to save somebody, but no, we played a game where the object was to make everybody else go bankrupt and we would proffer. But possessions and wealth and money in the Gospel of Luke is actually complicated. There are mixed signals. Jesus does tell, in this Gospel, he tells a rich man, give it all away. But another rich man, by the name of Zacchaeus, gives half of his possessions, and Jesus says, yep, that, that's enough. What? Wh which is it? And not only that, in Luke chapter 8, he lists some wealthy women who are supporting the ministry of Jesus. So what's the message? There are parables in Luke about the rich getting rich at the expense of the poor, but not this one. He is not the crooked farmer, he has made it totally above board. But he's a fool because his priorities are way out of whack. He's forgotten what really counts. Barbara Brown Taylor, when she was reflecting on this parable, she made a list of the stuff that she likes, that she owns, like the copper-bottomed saucepans that she bought. She loves those copper-bottomed saucepans. I don't really care about copper-bottomed saucepans, but I have a list, and I'll bet you do too. You know, the stuff that you would grab if the house was on fire? I made a list. It's a good exercise. 
I can't explain it, but I really like my rollerball pen. It's an expensive one made by Cross. That's a good brand for a preacher, right, Cross? I love that pen. I wrote that, this sermon with that pen. That's, that's my favorite pen. I like it. I love, love my roll-top, antique roll-top desk in my study at home. I, I don't think I can carry it out in a fire, but I love that thing. I, I have lots of golf memorabilia, including, including a signed flag from the Masters signed by Phil Mickelson, his first Masters victory. That, that's, that's a treasure. I like this stuff. A very generous friend this last year gave me, it's framed, it's a page of the Gospel of John, chapter 3, first edition, King James, 1612. I mean, that'd take your breath away. That is an amazing thing. And back in February, I got a new car, nothing real fancy, Nissan Altima, but it has heated steering. <laughs> I mean, that is an indulgent pleasure on a cold day. It's like a massage. It's amazing. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying all those things. Not a thing wrong. But here's where the parable throws us the twist. Here comes the humdinger. And the best way to explain it, my mentor Tom Long used to say, there are some parables where when you read them you go, huh, you put your hand on your chin and you go, well, no, that's, that's kind of interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But then there are others where the rug gets pulled out from under you. Instead of, oh, that's interesting, it's, oh, my God. I never imagined. And that's what happens here. It sounds like when God shows up, it's the grim reaper, you know, hooded in the shadows at your door with a sickle in hand and kind of, uh, you know, tonight your life is being taken from you. It's judgment day. That is not how it reads in the original. This is what it says. You fool, tonight these things are requiring your soul. This stuff, these possessions, it's taking control of your life. It is taking your very soul and sucking it dry. I mean, the parable says, yeah, you can't really take it with you, but, but, but bigger than that, it says this stuff can take you with it even while you're living. Take your very soul. Fred Craddock used to tell a story about when he would go home to Tennessee Christmas time, he'd go into this little restaurant, and his buddy was there, say, Merry Christmas, Buck, and Buck would give him a piece of pie and some coffee, and one year, Buck didn't do it. He said, we got to get out of here, and they went somewhere else, and Buck said, i got to take the curtain down, and Fred knew exactly what he meant, because in Buck's restaurant, if you were white, you came in off the street, if you were black, you came in off the alley, and there was a curtain that divided them. And Buck said, I got to take the curtain down. And Fred said, well, then take it down. And Buck said, it's not that easy. If I take that curtain down, I will lose some of my customers. But if I leave it up, I will lose my soul. And while I suspect that is true, for most of us, I doubt that's where we are. I don't think it's always that blatant and obvious. I think in some ways, it's more subtle. You know, just a little more overtime, just a little, you know, one week of vacation missed. I'm, I'm building it for the family. I'm doing it for the good of the family. 
or quibbling over inheritance, whatever it is, I think those forms of greed that Jesus warns against, I think they sneak up on us slowly and seductively. Near the end of the passage, Jesus says that we should be rich toward God, and it's really a hard phrase to interpret. It's not clear what it means. It it can sound like those televangelists, they're always talking about money. I don't have the hair to be a televangelist. You won't see a bald televangelist. (laughs) And I don't have the stomach for that kind of theology. But I do believe this, that when you give financially to missions, the church, something in the name of God, it is the most concrete way to practice spirituality. It is concrete to give of our possessions. It's that phrase about put your money where your mouth is. It puts it into action. So this last week, thinking about Thanksgiving and this passage and the juxtaposition, the crazy juxtaposition in our culture where there is a day where we're supposed to sit and think about what we are grateful that we have and by the end of the day or the next day start shopping for more. That's just the craziest juxtaposition. And I thought about all the stuff that I have. And I thought about putting it in the scales. Not the kind in your bathroom that tells you how much pie you had, but the kind, you know, where things hang in the balance. So you put all this stuff, the pen, the golf member, but you put it all in the scale. And on the other side, my soul. And you just kind of look. And my hunch is it's not settled one way or another, that it tips time to time. I know in the passage it says, tonight, this moment, right now, these things are requiring your soul. But I'm not, I'm not so sure it's that obvious, that moment in time. I mean, don't you think it's possible those kind of moments sneak up on us? How do you know when you've lost your soul? 